Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa Connect. And I am incredibly excited to introduce our next guest here today on the RIA Edge podcast. We are you know, thrilled to have Jessica Polito here, who is the founder of Turkey Hill Management. Yes, I came across you on LinkedIn not long ago. I've become very familiar with your content, but this is our first live conversation, even though I feel like I already know you. Um, so really looking forward to getting your perspective on some M&A activity in the second half of this year. But more than anything, really looking forward to getting to know you and a little bit about Turkey Hill. So thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Oh, Mark, thank you so much for having me. What a nice introduction. Yeah. And for our listeners who may also be familiar with some of your content, I think you do a great job on you know, LinkedIn offering perspective on M&A activity, some of the different drivers of growth and valuation in our space. But you know, doing a little bit of research on Turkey Hill and getting to know you a little bit too, there are some differences in your business model when compared to some other investment banks and M&A advisory firms out there. So if you wouldn't mind, for our listeners, could you give a little bit of background on you know, who you work with, what types of firms you represent, what an ideal project or assignment looks like for you, and why you started Turkey Hill? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I guess by way of background, I have spent my entire career providing M&A advice to the wealth and asset management industry. I left uh, two or three years ago and thought that I was going to uh, retire and spend some time raising my children. Um, but that is not obviously what ended up happening. So it was it was actually a prospect that I had called on for years who wouldn't take no for an answer when I told them I was done working. Um, so I set up Turkey Hill as kind of a one-off firm just to help this guy through an acquisition. And I realized that I, I really do love M&A, especially as it relates to wealth managers. I just feel like there's a little bit of an inherent conflict between the way that traditional investment banks are set up in that they charge a success fee when a deal is completed, especially in wealth management where you're not selling an asset necessarily, you're selling relationships. I think it's really important to have full alignment with your client, whether it's on the buy side or the sell side. You really, you know, the economics are the economics and obviously you're going to work to get the best economic deal that you can. Um, but Importantly, it's really about finding a, an appropriate home for the client and for their clients and for their employees to carry on the legacy of the business that the founder had had created. So I removed the success fee component from the way that I charge clients. It's fully retainer-based, cancelable at any time uh, with no tails or anything like that. And I kind of assumed when I first started that I would be working with the smaller firms who maybe were only going to sell for a few million dollars and didn't want to pay an investment bank several hundred thousand dollars at the end of a deal. But it turns out the bigger the deal, the bigger the check you have to write. So I have been uh, delighted to see clients come in all shapes and sizes 
from a few hundred million up to several billion. I work on the buy side and the sell side running full processes the way that you would see at a traditional investment bank, but with a slightly different help. I appreciate that. And I think it's a good starting point for our conversation here today, which you know, at its core, I'd love to dive in and get your mid-year update on M&A activity in the RIA space. I think you know, it's so easy to just look at you know, the same you know, research and the same reports, same statistics every quarter, every you know, six months and say M&A activity is up or down. But there's so much more that's actually really going on in the industry that you know we really need to spend more time getting into. Um, so we're just coming off of our RIA Edge conference that was at the end of May, focused a lot on you know, valuation, drivers of valuation, and got an update on a lot of the activity that's taken place year to date in the RIA channel. And I'm actually very pleased to share that. Uh, thank you, Jess. You'll be speaking at our RIA Edge West conference, September 27th through September 29th. First time we'll be hosting that conference and very excited to hear your thoughts about how M&A is progressing and taking shape. But maybe you know, before we get too far into the future, we can get an update on where we are now. Um, we know markets have been obviously volatile for the first time in a while over the last 12 to 18 months, um, and that's impacted M&A activity. But I'm curious, you know, where are we now and how does M&A activity mid-year compare with what you were expecting when we were turning the page and heading into 2023? <laughs> well, I think I think if we've learned one thing over the past few years is that you you really can't have expectations for the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> things, for sure. things have been uh, have been kind of beyond anyone's expectations, negative, positive, or or otherwise. So I think you know one of one of the conversations that keeps getting had over and over and over again is around valuations. Um, I think the the conversation has been, well, you know, is there is there going to be or have you seen a decline in valuation since kind of the MA frenzy during the pandemic? Um, and I think by and large the answer is no, even though everyone is expecting it. I think what we're seeing is the buyers of quality have not wavered in what they are willing to pay for firms of quality. Maybe what's been removed are some of the outliers, you know, like the, the CIs, for example, that everyone's familiar with who are paying 20 plus times for businesses who were kind of maybe putting false expectations into the market as to what firms are really going for. But in terms of overall valuations, you know, if you were to survey 10 or 15 buyers, I don't see levels dropping. To pre-pandemic levels, I think you know we're kind of at, at a new era of what firms are selling for. I think the difference is in the quality of the work that's going into getting deals done. I think people are being more thoughtful about what it is that they want to get out of a deal, both from the buy side and the sell side. I have a lot of sellers coming to me now saying, you know, the economics are not important. I understand I'm going to get fair value for my firm. I just want to make sure that. I am not just integrated and forgotten. I want to make sure that my clients are taken care of. I want to make sure that my employees feel like I've found an appropriate home for them. And I think we're seeing that on the buy side as well as, as a result. I think we're seeing buyers really try to find ways to differentiate themselves. What I get asked a lot is, you know, there are so many buyers knocking on my door. How am I supposed to tell the difference between them? And I think buyers are reacting to that. Um, and we're seeing more thoughtful M&A decks, we're seeing more thoughtful conversations, we're seeing more questions about, you know, I really, I really want to win this deal. What do I need to do? How do I need to explain to them how great our company is? 
so that they understand like why we love working here and why they would be a good fit. And it's, it's really nice to see that. I don't want to call it a shift, but that expression uh, in the industry, I think in ways that it wasn't there a few years ago. Yeah. It's uh, for me, I think we've talked about you know, valuation quite a bit. We know valuations are strong because I'm more than anything, the RA channel is still in growth mode. Right. Um, so, you know, you can obviously strip apart you know, any sort of deal price and determine whether or not you're overpaying or underpaying, but the levels are still pretty good you know, from a historical perspective. I think, you know, for me, what I'm really interested in understanding now is you know, where do we go from here? Right. And I'll just kind of offer my own opinion and perspective for a minute here just to tee it up. But if I look back at maybe five or six years ago, what was motivating the majority of the deals that were getting done, um, it was really succession planning or exit planning. Now it feels like you know the motivations are different. And I have my own point of view on what's motivating it, but I'm curious. <laughs> I mean, if you were to look today versus you know five years ago, um, what's primarily motivating sellers right now, what would you say is at the top of the list? Well, I think to answer your question a little bit differently, sellers are in a really good position if they are not selling when they are in need of succession, which I think is another mm -hmm. way of saying what you just said. The The thing about the wealth management industry is, you know, as long as there are people setting up firms, there are people getting to retirement age that need to sell because they haven't planned for succession appropriately. And I think, you know, there are plenty of very high quality buyers out there who are able to help with succession planning. And that will always be the case. But I think I think the question that you're asking is, what about the 40 and 50 year olds who have built quality businesses and aren't ready to retire, but maybe can't, you know, have reached a point on their own where they're at an inflection point where either they can invest a whole bunch internally and try to build out their business further, or they can find a partner that can help them supercharge their growth. And for those who are successful in doing a deal with a partner that can help them supercharge that growth, you know, it's, it's mutually beneficial, right? If you're able, especially if you're able to take equity in the buyer, um, mm -hmm. it's a win-win for everyone because all you're doing is working together with additional capital, additional resources to supercharge the growth of both of those businesses. <laughs> and then, you know, some of the parts is, is greater than if they were to be separate. So it's kind of a win-win a from that perspective. I, I don't know if that's what you were what you were getting at, if there was something different that you wanted to talk no, it about. Is, it is what I'm hinting at to some extent is yeah, there was, I felt like a fair number, uh, there were a fair number of firms that were potentially looking in say tw late 2021, you know, early 2022 and saying, you know, maybe this is the end of the run, right? Um, and they were looking to sell or cash out while valuations were still pretty high. Uh, maybe not at their all time high levels, right? But still pretty high. The more firms that I talk to now about M&A, they're not thinking about that valuation as much as they're thinking about how can M&A lead to sort of my next generation of growth. Sure. Um, and it's such an interesting time right now because there are more options available to you know, well, both buyers and sellers. But if I'm a seller, um, I have more options today than I ever have before. Um, and, and I'm finding personally, and this is my bias, my one-to-one -one <laughs> research in my conversations that I'm having, um, that so much of the conversation with sellers now is about growth. So I'm kind of curious how that reconciles with you know, your experience now and also how you think it might impact M&A activity over the remainder of 2023 and heading into 2024. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, and one thing that we've seen an emergence of is 
well, one, private equity and just their interest in the wealth management space in general. But two, we're seeing a proliferation of patient capital or something that looks more like patient capital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the private equity like firms where, you know, it's a, it's a consortium of, of people that have given money to a handful of people that have experience in the wealth management space who maybe only want to acquire one or two or three firms and maybe not even a hundred percent, you know, maybe it's a large major or large minority or a small large minority or small majority and really help them with exactly what you're saying with growth. Pay one-on-one attention to them, you know, don't just give them the capital, but actually help them put it to work and help them invest internally. So again, everyone is able to profit off of the combined efforts to help growth. I think that's a hundred percent right. And, you know, to an extent, I mean, not to an extent, I think fully cultural compatibility there is just as important as if you were to sell to an integrator or, you know, a more traditional buyer, because you really have to share a combined vision of what growth is going to look like and how to handle it when it comes uh, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think of traditional private equity buyers. It's an interesting thing to really think about, you know, not only the motivators, right, but also, as you mentioned, in the very beginning of the discussion here, how many, you know, not only options or paths, but how many different types of buyers there are now. Um, yeah. And I think they're more established. I think they're much more you know, professional than they've ever been. Um, but I am curious, I mean, if I'm a seller and I am thinking about growth and I'm looking at some of the professional buyers that are out there, or at least the more established buyers, um, what are some questions that I should be asking them to really, truly, one, understand the differences, and two, if it's the right fit for me and I'm looking to actually drive and create net new growth? So I think what's interesting about all of this private equity interest in, in wealth management recently is that there is this new set of buyers that have emerged over the last few years, and many of them are on their first capital infusion from private equity. So Based on what we've seen for the first half of this year with focus going private with the help of Clayton Dublier and, and CI with their um, payment and kind note and Mercer raising two rounds of capital over the course of a few months, what I would be asking as a seller is, okay, this is your first round of private equity. What's going to happen after the third or fourth round? You know, how do we ensure that you know, you don't get taken private for 13 times or whatever, right. whatever it is that happened with focus. Because if, if I'm 45 years old and I'm selling my firm, uh, I'm probably going to be with you while you change hands two or three more times. And I want to make sure that, you know, my, my future and uh, the future of my clients and my employees and, and the equity that I have with you is protected. Yeah. And how do I also know if it really matters, right? Um, It may not have an impact on any level. I'm sure it will, obviously, it always does. Um, But um, those are really good questions to be asking. And I would actually ask you that very same question. If you're advising a client and they're looking at potentially a firm that has just taken its first round, right, from a private equity company, not, not only what questions would you advise them to ask, but what are some of the scenarios, best worst case scenario, um, that you would advise them to be thinking about, right? So they can determine if it's even an option that they want to explore. So I think the most important question, and this really is the answer to the majority of the questions that you just asked, is do I trust the people that I'm selling to? A lot of it is the exploration between 
how they're interacting with their private equity owner um, and how much control the private equity owner has over the day-to-day business, because that's going to tell you how they negotiate their transactions and likely how the next transaction is going to look. You know, they're not, they're unlikely to go from one private equity firm that completely sits back and lets them do whatever they want to another one that's going to dictate, you know, every single budget decision that they make, right? I mean, there's clearly kind of a a style and a type of firm that they like to work with. And it, it really is about establishing trust and an open trusting relationship between the buyer and the seller to the point where they, they feel like the person in charge of the buyer is going to be a good steward and, and make good decisions going forward as, you know, there are another one or two turns of private equity over the course of the next, you know, seven to 10 years. Yeah. And it's just one scenario, right, of how there have been so many different options that have been introduced, um, but highlights how many different decision making, you know, sort of processes are involved in this and how many different you know paths there are that you could go down during this. You know, I would yeah, also, but I mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Jess. I was, I was just going to say, I think that the overarching message in any deal, whether or not they have outside capital or not, is, is whether you trust the other firm. You know, yeah. I, I was having this conversation recently with the seller, which is, you know, you can't you can't have every single question and what if scenario answered before you sign. But what you can do is establish a level of trust um, between you and the buyer where you can anticipate how they're going to handle a situation. And that is so important. Mm-hmm. Because you know, money money only gets you so far. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to be miserable and you, you feel like your business is going to fall apart and your clients are going to leave um, because you didn't take the time to really understand who you're selling to, the, the transaction was was meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a lot of coaching and a lot of education needed around what happens after the close, so to speak. Right. Um, we always talk about the deal making process and everything leading up to the deal. Um, but it, and we're guilty of this on wealthmanagement.com. We'll write a hundred stories over the course of a year about, you know, one firm buying another firm. We will very rarely, if ever, come back a year later and ask, how's it going? Um, what worked? What didn't? So I am curious maybe to pick that apart a little bit uh, before we get it, you to glimpse into your crystal ball um, <laughs> and offer a little bit more of a perspective on what's ahead. But two part question. One, curious, what percentage of deals do you think have actually been successful that have taken place over the last several years? And two, what are one or two key ingredients of some of the most successful deals that have taken place when you look at how they work together after the close? Well, I think success is is defined by the seller and the buyer. So, you know, if it's growth, if it's happiness, if it's client retention, I mean, I think those are all different metrics to, to decide whether a deal was successful. I mean, what I'll say is that we're seeing less divestitures than we did, yeah. you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago when, you know, it was really like the true auctions that were being run and mm-hmm. firms weren't even meeting before, you know, economics were discussed. And I think fortunately that has gone by the wayside. Yeah. I don't know. That's a hard, that's a hard question to answer. So I'll ask it a slightly different way. Okay. okay. Um, and if, if there's no percentage, that's okay. Um, but if one plus one equals more than two, typically what's gone right? Typically what's gone right is clients stick around. Employees are happy. 
if there was a succession need, it has been filled. And I mean, really, you know, if, if the relationship was established correctly, then whatever it is that the seller promised they were going to do, they're doing. And mm-hmm. whatever the buyer promised they were going to do, they're doing. If it's yeah. referrals, if it's, you know, marketing help, whatever it is, uh, because every transaction is so unique and the goals are so different. And and that's kind of why I'm saying it, it's hard to judge success because there's no one or two metrics that you can really place other than, you know, did they turn around and sell them two or three years later because it was such a disaster. They couldn't, they couldn't handle each other, <laughs> just had to get through the earnout, yeah. right? Um, which you don't see very often. So, you know, for, for whatever that's worth, you know, I do try and keep up with my clients after deals are done um, just to see, you know, exactly what you're saying, six, 12, 18 months down the line, how are things going? And obviously integration to the extent that it happens is not fun. You know, most founders either never had a boss or started a company because they never wanted to have a boss again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, by the very nature of selling, you know, you're going to, to one extent or another, have a boss and be told what to do. And sometimes it's not what you want to do, but I don't think that's a measure of success or not. I think that's an adjustment. Um, and it's really, you know, two, three, four years afterwards, are you still miserable <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> have you kind of adapted to what the new status quo is? Um, and you recognize, you know, why, why it's in place you know, and, but, you know, ultimately you still feel like it it was the right decision. And I think more often than not, that is the case. Yeah. I think you just answered that question perfectly. And I appreciate that a very easy answer to that question is culture, right? We've created the right culture. Um, We put the right people and processes in place to do that. Um, But before you even get there, I love that you went straight to delivery and promises, right? Did the seller deliver on what they said they would? And did the buyer deliver on what they said they were? Because if they don't, it doesn't make a difference how many pizza parties you throw, right? Right. Um, All right. You don't have the right foundation to create a really strong culture where people trust each other and want to be working together, right? To build something that is more than what they were as independent entities. Um, So I, I really do appreciate the way you answered that question. It was a provocative question because there is no right answer to it. And there are many <laughs> answers, right? Um, but well, yeah, it is it is a question that I think we do need to ask more often right, as an industry and be more open in sharing you know, what's worked and what hasn't. Well, I think what you're saying is right. Because I, I mean, I, we're, I feel like we're not allowed to use the, the culture word anymore because it's it's been used so much, it's lost meaning. Um, and in the same sense that, you know, what I was saying, like buyers are trying to find ways to differentiate themselves because it's not enough anymore to just say, oh, we'll take over your back office and, you know, what, whatever mm-hmm. else that everyone else is saying. It, it really is kind of digging into, okay, well, what does culture actually mean? You know, is it pizza parties or is it I'm, I'm happy to pick up the phone when this person calls me even, you know, two years after the deal is done? And why is that? And what's actually going to make me feel fulfilled? And like I made the right decision because culture means as many different things as success when you're talking about transactions. 100%. And I think that that's another great way of really thinking about the prioritization um, you know, and just how important it is to define success up front. Um, so often we just look at you know, the price, right? Um, as a major metric, um, but is it good for my employees? Is it good for the clients? Um, what are, is it good for me personally, right? If I, am I spending my time 
version 2.0, right, of me right. in a way that I might really want to and might really enjoy. Um, so <laughs> I do think it's important to think about all of those different factors, obviously. Yeah, and I, I think the thing about price, I mean, it's it's important, right? Like you, this is a business that you have built up over a long period of time. You've poured a lot of sweat equity into it. You want to make sure that you're getting fair value for your business. The thing about it is if you if you go out and you talk to four or five firms or you get four or five proposals, you're going to know what the market thinks you're worth. And obviously it's up to the advisor to get you the best deal possible and the best economic terms and, and all that. But that's, that's the easy part, <laughs> you right. know, right. Um, it's, it's everything else. It's all the soft stuff that actually makes a deal work. That's important. And, and I think people are, are, they've always realized it, but it's starting to become more and more part of the conversation. And that's, that's what gets me excited about my job. Mm -hmm. And I think people need to hear that. Um, if you're a really well-run, high-quality firm that's had you know, consistent growth, you'll find out pretty quickly what the fair market value for your firm is. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. And you definitely have, uh, it's easy to ask the question, is it buyer's market, seller's market? For really high-quality firms, I personally think it's always a seller's market because there are not many firms in this space. Um, Agreed. Only a couple of thousand firms that are over you know, $500 million. Um, and a fraction of those are, you know, for sale actively at any given moment. Um, so yeah, I think and not that, only that, all of them are different. You know, yeah. you have you have two billion dollar firms, and one of them has a twenty percent margin, one of them has a seventy percent margin, and one of them is full of, you know, not nice people, and one of them is filled with great people. And and there are so many factors that go into every deal. You know, it's it really is not a cookie cutter industry by any stretch of the imagination, because it's just personalities. That's what, that's what this entire industry is. Yep. It's uh, I think the, the podcast team here is sick of hearing me say that if you've met one RIA, you've met one RIA, but it's why we do this. It's why we do this. And it's why we interview so many people who are founders and decision makers at RIAs, uh, because everybody has a different way of thinking about managing their business, right? And everybody just has a different way of thinking about the opportunities um, that are in front of them. So I think that that's you know, a really important distinction. And I think you know, with that, I'd love to wrap up by just getting your view, and it doesn't have to be limited to 2023. It could be obviously much more extended. Um, but as you look at the amount of M&A activity or valuations, or even just the composition, right? The players who are involved in M&A, where, where are we you know, in the M&A cycle and where do we go from here? The word cycle is interesting because I think, I mean, I don't think it's going anywhere. Right. <laughs> um, sure. You know, M&A obviously a lagging indicator, that's fine. But I mean, like like I was saying, you know, there, there, as long as there are founders and entrepreneurs, there are going to be businesses for sale. Some are going to be run better than others. Some are going to be worth more than others. But I think there will always be a place for M&A um, and there will always be thoughtful buyers and thoughtful sellers. I don't think, like I said earlier, valuations are going anywhere. I do think that people are increasingly put, putting more and more thought into everything besides economics, which is wonderful. And I think there's there's space for lots of buyers and lots of sellers. You know, it's the same thing that I say about my own business, which is, you know, I don't, I don't need to do every deal in the industry. I just need to do the ones that make sense for the way that I, I run things. Um, and the same is true in the M&A space in general. You know, there, there's room for buyers and there's room for sellers because ultimately there's only one right match for each one of them, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe not buyers, but you know, one one right match for each mm-hmm. seller. I mean, I guess my my hope for the future is that it, it continues going down this path. Um, that we continue to be thoughtful and you know do deals for the right reasons and let the economics be one of many factors in making the right decision. It's definitely why we wanted to have you on the podcast, right? Um, education is a huge part of that process. Um, the M&A processes has matured quite a bit over the last several years, and not just from the perspective of the buyers and the sellers, but obviously the third parties, the intermediaries that are involved, like you and Turkey Hill. Um, so thank you for stopping by the podcast and for you know, sharing a little bit of your perspective, but also just you know, your experience. Uh, in the M&A world, in the RIA channel. Is there anything that you'd leave our audience with here that we didn't touch on on the subject of M&A before we wrap up? Well, we should invite all of them to the conference on September 27th, 29th, right? There we go. Um, thank you. Come on uh, by. And if you ever decide to get out of M&A and you want to get into marketing, uh, we have a few openings on my team. But thank you very much for that reminder. We're just we're looking forward to seeing you out there. We'll be at the Ritz-Carlton in Marina del Rey on September 27th through 29th, where this will be the first RA Edge conference that we'll host as a standalone on the West Coast. Um, And the goal and the intent is to really go deep into a lot of the issues that we just discussed here. Um, So this is really foreshadowing some of the topics that will be discussed there. And it's intended for people who are decision makers, owners, and founders in the RIA space. So we can have meaningful conversations about how do we make one plus one equal more than two outside of just the raw economics, right? Um, So Jess, thank you for teeing that up as nicely as you did. And thank you for spending time with us. We, We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to seeing you in September. Same here. Pleasure spending time with you today. Jess Polito, Turkey Hill, thank you so much for stopping by. And on behalf of the wealthmanagement.com team, I'm Mark Bruno. Thank you very much for listening to the RIA Edge podcast. We look forward to having everybody back on the very next episode soon. Take care. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways They provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.